This is episode 508 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When we realize our need for growing our faith, especially in these troubling times we see all around us, we often come up against the big question, the so-called elephant in the room. And the question goes something like this, what do I do next? What's my next step in growing my faith? So let's lay out a few principles. First, like everything else in life, faith must be tested in order to grow. And the testing of our faith means that usually we'll be put in difficult situations where we will have to rely not on our own resources, but on our faith in God to get us through. And these experiences are sometimes painful. Actually, they're mostly always painful. And second, In order for our faith to grow, we must have our faith centered in the truth of God and in his promises to the point that it will prevail over our doubts and fears and insecurities and maybe past bad experiences. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. This is where the, I know God is able, I just don't think he will do it for me comes in. Or the, he loves all his children except me raises its ugly head. And that mindset has to go in order for our faith to grow. So in this message, we're going to look at five truths about God's love. We'll make it simple in the beginning, and we'll learn how to strive through that painful process of making these truths about God's love also true to us. And we're going to strive this week to live like we actually believe these truths to be true, that God loves us. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We're in Psalm 139, and we're talking about how to grow your faith. Um, I don't want it to come across like I'm frustrated, because I'm not. I'm frightened. I'm frightened for the church of Jesus Christ today. And let me give you a small example. Here's a small example. Let me tell you what's happened uh, in my lifetime since, um, oh, I can just tell you by my experience. I was born in 1955, which makes me not quite as old as dirt, but pretty close to being as old as dirt. Uh, I was a um, young person during the beginning of the Jesus movement. I was way too young to participate in it. I didn't even know Christ at that time. And I remember Time Magazine had the picture of Jesus on it. And all this Jesus revival took place. It was the Expo in 73 in Texas where Billy Graham uh, preached. And the beginning of contemporary Christian music, those artists, Andre Crouch, second chapter of Acts, that we don't even know about today, was there. And, and uh, the Imperials, if you remember any of them. And, and then all of a sudden, I got to the point where I started listening to Christian music. And Christian music was just kind of like the secular music I listened to. I fell in love with Petra and a couple other bands like that. And, and then we had just this influence of, of, you know, contemporary Christian music into the church, which was wonderful. As a matter of fact, I first heard the gospel through an album by somebody you've never even heard of because it spoke to me in a language that I was open to at that time. Church music began to change. We had church wars. We had the music wars. We had the hymn books. And then we had people wanting to actually bring these awful instruments into the church, like a guitar and a, a drum. Before you had the drum, you had a little djembe, you know, which is kind of a 
crossover drug, you know, a gateway drug, and, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I lived through all that. I, I know what that was like. Um, one of the consequences of that uh, is this. There's been a change in just the music we listen to. Back for centuries, I mean for centuries, denominations would put out, or movements would put out hymn books. And the hymn books are based on doctrine. It was always based on the teaching of the songs. If the teaching of the songs met the doctrinal position, then it was usually allowed in the hymn book. The music was always kind of boring. You know, there wasn't really much to it. There was an organ and maybe there was a, a piano and a guy waving his arm and you sang songs about doctrine, about God, about his attributes. A mighty fortress is our God. And it was always pointed this way. And if it wasn't pointed this way, then we never, it, it didn't make it into the hymn books. And this is the way it was for centuries until about the early 70s. In the early 70s, all of a sudden there was some um, music that the young people liked, our generation liked, and we didn't understand why we couldn't sing that at church. And they'd all been ready. What was that? Remember? Yeah, I wish we'd all been ready and all these kind of songs. And why couldn't those be in the hymn books? And, and little by little, radio stations began to kind of niche out. And you had like a Christian radio station. The first big one was an AM station in Atlanta. Um, you had these Christian bookstores is the only place you could go and actually buy Christian music. Keith Green and Steve Camp and people in the late 70s and early 80s. And, and so as Christian music became more popular and as churches began singing a little more Christian songs, Christian radio stations kind of sprung up. And when Christian radio stations sprung up, they had to have a specific niche. I know this, not just academically, I worked for 10 years as a concert promoter at a Christian radio station. You know that. You went to many of my shows. And so a Christian radio station said, we need to niche down. We need to have our avatar. And so we have to pick a person that every decision we make is based on how that person would feel. And so industry-wide, the person's name was Becky. Becky was a, uh, each radio station changed, but the person whose name was Becky. Becky was a uh, 24 to 40-year-old female with two kids. No, 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 that's too, too large. We need to niche it down even more to an individual person. And our radio station, we called her Debbie. And we actually had a picture of Debbie on everybody's desk and a picture of Debbie on the, you know, where the radio announcers were and all that kind of stuff. So that everything we would do, we would look at Debbie and we would say, does Debbie like this? Debbie was 34 years old. Debbie had been married. She's not happily married, but she'd been married. She still has some struggles in her marriage. Her husband works too much. She feels like he doesn't help out uh, at the home. She has two kids. She drives a, a minivan. Her kids go to school, so she's free many times during the day, but she's not sure how to fill her days. And she gets really frustrated when she goes to, to, um, to the grocery store and there's only one checkout line. And she's really frustrated in the fact that, you know, she's not, doesn't have a full-time income like her husband does, so she works sometimes part-time, and sometimes she volunteers for a ministry, and her family's kind of full of tension, and, and she's not really the kind of person that you like. I mean, okay, she's whiny, and she's needy, and, and this, this is who she is. This is who we determine everything we do as a radio station for. Her name at, at 91.9 was Debbie. If Debbie likes it, we do it. We had a full-time music director, and as all the new songs would come in, 
Chris Tomlin songs, the David Crowder songs, and all these songs would come in. He would listen to them. We'd have a meeting on them, and the question would always, what does Debbie think? Well, Debbie likes that song, so therefore we play that song. If Debbie doesn't like that song, we won't play that song. I can't tell you the number of times that I would go to them for years and say, have you heard of Andrew Peterson? The guy's songs are doctrinally incredible. They move you and all the, Debbie doesn't like them. Debbie doesn't like them. Debbie doesn't like them until he came out with this song, Is He Worthy? And all of a sudden, Debbie liked, Is He Worthy? So now that's played on the radio station. So churches play that because that's the only time anybody ever heard of Andrew Peterson. Um, I'm thinking, you know, why are we targeting everything we're doing here to the housewife who's a marginal Christian at best? Why are we targeting to her husband and putting some teaching shows on there? Again, don't judge all Christian radio by 106.9. We're fortunate. That's a Billy Graham station. So therefore, it's built into the DNA that they have to have teaching shows. Uh, Rest of the stations, don't. And if they do, it's something like Family Life Today, where we're going to talk about how to raise kids in a blended family because that's what Debbie needs to know about, not about stuff Ben wants to know about. Why can't we? Because this isn't a man's station. This is a Debbie station. Okay. I got that. Uh, Bothered me immensely. Didn't really understand it because I kind of viewed radio as a ministry rather than radio as a business. Now, here's what's happened. Here's what's happened. Every song that we sing in church, you've heard on the radio. You would not even know who Chris Tomlin was unless Debbie liked Chris Tomlin. If Debbie didn't like Chris Tomlin, Chris Tomlin would never be played on the radio station. You would never know who Chris Tomlin was. Churches would never be playing his music. That's just the way it is. And so our entire church-wide, our entire music industry, the songs that are sung in churches, contemporary songs, nationwide are pretty much decided by an avatar of a 34-year-old woman who's not too happy in her marriage, who is a marginal Christian at best, maybe a, maybe a, a four or five, possibly a six, who gets really frustrated with the fact that, you know, they didn't give her two sugars at Starbucks. And that's the person who's making decisions about the songs we sing in church. Isn't that amazing? Have you noticed most of the new songs are all about us? You know, it's about me, how God loves me, how God is good to me, how God has taken care of me. 50 years ago, 250 years ago, it was all about him. Now listen, we've all grown up under this. We've all seen it that way, the proliferation of new Bible translations and the the watering down of the gospel and stuff of that nature. We've all seen it and lived in it, and it's become second nature to us, but it's not preparing us for the people we need to be. Why do men feel marginalized? I mean, even the radio stations are talking to their wives. Well, who talks to a man? Nobody. So therefore, men don't listen to Christian music. Therefore, men don't really listen to a lot of preaching. Therefore, men aren't really interested in that kind of stuff because the Christian worldview is shifted away from them. So we're going to focus on something that makes sense to us, like our business or our ball team or our friends. And 
And this is the world in which we live in. And we're getting ready to face a time where we have to have leadership. And we have everything in our culture working against us. So how do I grow spiritually? How do I, how do I figure out what God wants? Men, women, children. Rules are all the same. Faith, like everything else, must be tested. I, I kind of did you a disservice last week on purpose. I gave you some verses, and I asked you to pray that the Lord would put you in a situation where you had to live by those verses. And if you're going to live by those verses, then it's going to be a trial and tribulation situation. kind of omitted that part to you because I don't want to scare you away early. And so if I'm going to make a decision of God, I'm going to forgive this person, I said, that person this week's going to get in your face and just mess you up. It happens that we've alerted Satan. This is what we're going to do because faith only grows when it's tested, when you're willing to take the shots, when you're willing to take the hits, when you're willing to be tested. What are you made of? If you persevere, you're stronger. If you quake, I've just handed Satan a tool, a club, to beat me with the same way over and over again because he knows I'm going to fail. Number two, faith must prevail over our damaged emotions and our feelings of failure about everything, men and women, everything. Well, I don't really think God loves me because of the sins that I've committed. You know, man... When I was 18 years old, 16 years old, I really felt God calling me into the ministry, calling me into a deeper relationship with him. But you know, I had this girlfriend at the time and I didn't want to give her up. So I said no to God. I'm now 47 years old. And I thought all that time, God can never never use me. He's done with me. He's finished with me. No, no. All that is stuff that we take into ourselves. All that is this covering over ourselves that when there's plenty of insulin to make us healthy, for some reason, the way we feel about God or the way we feel about ourselves is keeping that insulin like a type 2 diabetic from entering into the cells and making us healthy. And once we clear that stuff away, then all of a sudden we can function like God has wanted us to function. Whether you believe the lies in your head what feels good to your flesh, or whether you believe God's truth about you, truth about him is your choice. It's just your choice. It's not what the world has done to you. It's not how defeated you feel. No, I didn't get that job. God must not love me. You know, nobody, I don't have any friends. It must all be me, God. I'm just, I'm okay. I'm going to sound humble here. I'm okay. Just hanging on by my fingertips into the rapture. I don't really need any crowns to to give him for his glory. What? That's not humble. That's being a spiritual loser. I mean, the goal is to to win, to strive, to, to make him proud by yielding ourselves to him and letting him do the rest. So I'm ruminating all this this week, and I'm sitting down, I'm reading My Utmost for His Highest, and let me show you how God works. My Utmost for His Highest, and he referenced Psalm 139. I don't even remember what Psalm 139 says. Let me go back and and read it. So I flip back to 139, and in almost every single passage you look at, God will communicate the same truth to you. 
I mean, this is a totally random thing this week. It wasn't like I had a point to make and I went around and searched for a psalm to edify that. It was exactly the opposite. Psalm 139 begins past tense. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You have searched me and known me. Uh, what does it mean? Oh Lord, that is Jehovah. This is the God of the burning bush. This is the I am that I am. Oh God, you, the sovereign one, have searched me. You've considered me in detail. I have been subject to analysis, to investigate. You've searched me out. You've looked at every nuance in my life. You know my hidden thoughts. You know my public persona. You know what about me is genuine. You know what about me is fake. You know everything about me. I put the mask on in front of other people. Oh, that doesn't really bother me. You know that it does. This is what you have done, God. Oh, Lord, you have searched me. Make it personal. You've searched me, Steve. You've searched me, and you have known me. The word known here in the Hebrew is yada. It is the same word translated in the Septuagint in Greek as gnosko. You have known me by experience. You placed your favor upon me. You have known me intimately. You know every single thing about me. Past tense, God, this is what you have done for me. To what degree? Well, Lord, if you've known me that much, what did you find out? Did you find out all my hidden secrets? Did you find out all the things that makes me unqualified and unworthy and, and just ashamed of who I am? Did you find out all the things that I don't want anybody else to know? All the hidden secrets that I have, my, my lust and my passions and my sins that I've committed, the sins I even continue to commit on the sly and refuse to let you know about or, or others know about that or refuse to ask your forgiveness? You know everything, God. And what do you think about me? And how deep is your knowledge of me? The next verse is present tense. That was past. This is present. Here's what he says. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you implied or acquainted with all my ways. First thing I do when I look at this verse, I realize that man, this is a lot of God involved here. Every sentence is either explicit are implicit about God. You know something about me. You know my sitting and my rising. You know my thoughts. You know my path. You know my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. There's no place I can hide from you, God. You know me. And then he chooses four words to speak about, to amplify the word knowing. You know, you understand, you comprehend, and you are acquainted. Acquainted is a really difficult word in English because we think of acquaintance, an acquainted like, acquainted like an acquaintance. Oh yeah, I, I, yeah, they're my acquaintance. I kind of know them. Hey, hey, I don't remember their name, but that's who they are. It's not what it means in the Hebrew. You know, you understand, deeper now, you comprehend acquaintance. You're gonna find that's even deeper in the Hebrew. 
I mean, what do these words mean? You know, again, same word in, as gnosko in the Greek, you should know what that means by now. You know by experience, you know intimately, you know everything about me, you placed your favor upon me. You understand, that means to consider diligently, to discern, to perceive, to pay attention to. I'm studying, I'm understanding, I'm, I'm considering you, and I'm looking at you diligently. You comprehend, which is even deeper, I'm scrutinizing, I'm keeping a careful watch over, kind of like a warden does a bunch of prisoners. And acquaintance means to know the nature and character of something, that you know whether it's good or bad, whether it's trustworthy or not trustworthy. I know by experience, then I go deeper to understand because I'm looking at it under a microscope, and then I'm taking what I've seen under a microscope and now comprehending and scrutinizing, and then I'm scrutinizing to the point that I can discern the nature of what I'm looking at, whether it's good or bad or somewhere in between. And this is exactly what the Lord does to us. He knows what? By sitting down and my rising up. He knows when I'm resting and when I'm working. He knows when I'm meditating and reflecting. He knows when I'm out to do something. He knows my activity. He knows my lack of activity, my pondering. He knows everything. He understands to pay close attention to my thoughts. He knows what I think. Even when I'm far away from him, not the thoughts that are right in front of him, but he knows my thought even when it's far away. And it's singular here. It's the uh, thoughts is the combination of many thought. He knows the breaking it down to the individual thought from a distance. He comprehends, he scrutinizes, he watches very carefully my path, the way I walk, what I do, what I say, and my lying down when I'm resting at night when those thoughts come swirling in my head, when I find myself trying to pray, but I can't because of negative self-emotions or, or the overwhelming desire for wealth or comprehending problems or stuff of that nature. And he's acquainted, which means he knows the nature and the character of all my ways. Do I serve him? Do I serve me? Do I follow him or do I follow me? Have I committed my life to him or committed my life to me? Do I want praise and adulation for me or do I want all glory to go to him? He knows every single thing about you, which raises some questions. What does God not know about you? Your Wife may not know all your stuff, sins that you committed, thoughts that you have right now, struggles that you have. I don't want to tell her that. I don't want to burden her with that. Plus, I don't want her to know that. The most intimate person I'm with on the planet, still is part of me I'm holding back. Well, what about right now? Anything that you think or do or feel or hold on to that he doesn't know? Are you hiding anything from the one who scrutinizes every part about you? And if not, if he even knows our hidden thoughts, 
and our hidden feelings and our failures and our insecurities and our just fear of committing ourselves to him because I have to let go and give him control. And if there's truth that there's nothing about me that God doesn't know, are you shocked that he still loves you? Well, actually, I don't think he does. Actually, I I know his word says he does, but I don't even love me. And if I can't even love me, why would I expect God to love me? I mean, maybe he'll love me if I do this, if I change that, if I try harder over here, if I force myself to do this. Maybe I can earn his love. Maybe I can deserve his love. Maybe I can make myself more lovable. We think that way, and none of that is true. How in the world can God know every single thing about you, past, present, and future, and still love you? And if he does, here's that type 2 diabetic thing. Am I willing to throw off what's keeping this healing insulin from coming into my cells and making me whole? Am I willing to somehow rid my walls or my barriers that are keeping myself from embracing the love of God because I don't deserve it or I don't think I'm worthy or if I was God, I wouldn't love me? Well, praise God, we're not God, right? How does that work? So here's assignment number two. This time is going to be a little bit more focused. I have five more verses I want to share with you. I will be sending these out to you um, daily. First email will be tonight. You'll get the email prior to the morning before telling a little bit more detail about the verse. And every single verse is designed to show you that God loves you, irrespective of what you've done, what you think, or how often or habitually you fail. And if you can receive that, if your cells and your soul can somehow get rid of the garbage that keeps you from receiving what God wants you to have, it'll help you immensely with your faith and also to face all the circumstances that we struggle with. Day one, here's the statement. And I will send these out to you as an email. There is nothing you can do or have done or will do that will separate you from the love of God. Um, I, I hear that in my head, but I don't believe that in my heart. Well, do you want to see the scripture that teaches that? God wants us to know that we are secure in his love. No matter what you've done, no matter what you are doing, no matter what you will do, he still loves you. Very familiar passage. Romans 8, 35 through 39. I will break this down for you in an email a little more. But let's just read it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or literally, what? 
Shall tribulation going through really dark times right now, Lord? You know, I don't think you love me because you're making me go through this and I'm so depressed over what's happening. I'm so distressed by everything that's, that's going on. It's not just the circumstances. People are actually coming against me. They're saying terrible things about me. I'm being persecuted to the point I'm starving to death. I've got no clothes and I'm going to die. Well, we haven't faced that, but Paul did. What shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Don't you know the scripture prophesies that for your sake, God, other believers are killed all day long? They were accounted as sheep for the slaughter? That what's happening to them has happened to Christians? It happened to all our Christian heroes. Why should you be exempt and think of it as something much smaller than that is happening to you? Somebody defriended me on Facebook. I just can't get out of bed this morning. Really? Yet, in all these horrific things, we are not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. I don't feel it. That's because you're not doing it through him. That's because you're not living it through him. That's because you're not letting him take control. We are more than conquerors, not through you, but through him who loved us who loved us. How much so? Paul says, I am firmly persuaded and convinced that nothing, what do you mean by nothing? Life nor death. Angels, principalities, or powers, the angelic or demonic realm, the past, the present, the future, nothing. Matter of fact, I'll, I'll even make it like geometry in eighth grade, not height or death or any other created thing, which is everything other than God himself, shall be able to separate us, not from, the, not from the mercy or grace or peace or vengeance of God, but the love of God, which is not in you. It is in Christ Jesus, who is in you, our Lord. You cannot do this yourself. Number one, there's nothing you can do, have done, will do, that God still doesn't love you. Number two, God's love for you, regardless of your failures, is so great and perfect and wonderful that you can't even describe it. You can't put it into words. You can't even understand how much he loves you. Well, where's that at? What's well, Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. By the way, if you want to read the next two verses, it's the verses that says, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works in us, in the church, and in Christ Jesus for all generations. But prior to that, look at what he says. Now, the first sentence is the last part of verse 17. That you, me, well, just this me person out here that just hanging out by themselves, this me person that just doesn't feel love. No, you being rooted and grounded in love, established, firm, the foundation in love. Paul's prayer is that us who understand God's love may be able to comprehend, not just alone, but with all the holy ones, all the saints, back to a geometry lesson, which is the width and length and depth and height dash. Let me tell you what's happening here. Paul is dictating this letter, and he's getting so excited, he does what I do. He's, he starts on a thought, and then, then, then you comprehend with all the state, 
the saints, which is the width and the depth and the height. And he just gets so overwhelmed that he just switches subject and moves on to something else. So the translators put a dash there. We didn't even complete the thought because he moved on to something even deeper. I can't even describe Paul saying, what is the height and width and there? width and depth and, and length and, and mass of, of God's love. I, I'm trying to write it down, and I can't even describe it. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints, whether it's the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Wait, wait, you're asking me to know something that is beyond knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. And once you understand that you can't understand how much he loves you, that you'll be filled with the fullness of God. That's Tuesday, day two. Number three, if his love for you is so personal, so personal and intimate that he calls you his child, which is exactly what you are. This child, again, many of us had dysfunctional families. Being called a child of my dad was not that big a deal. Being called a child of God is amazing. Amazing, if you think about it. Special privileges come with children. Special forbearances come with children. Sacrifices come with being a child. We will give to the point of death to our children, but we won't do that to someone else. Because if I do, I'll be taking away from my children, and my children always come first. No matter what you've done, no matter what you are doing, no matter what God knows you will do to disappoint him or disappoint you, you are still his child. 1 John 3, 1. One verse. Behold. Behold. Just I'm shocked, just eureka. Do you understand what's happening here? What manner of agape the Father has bestowed upon us. Not philios, not friendship love. The kind of love God had for his son and his son had for his father. Read John 15. The same kind of love, this agape love, this altruistic love, the kind of love that Christ has for us. The Father has for us. Behold what manner of agape the Father has graciously given and bestowed upon us. So much so that we should be called, not by the world, but called by him, children of God. Exclamation point. John's an old man, and he's writing this, and he's so overwhelmed with it. It's children of God. Exclamation point. Therefore, because of that, the world does not place its favor on us. The world does not know us experientially. The world will always look down upon us. They will always chastise us. They will always be darkness and we are light. The world does not gnosko us. But don't feel bad because they didn't gnosko him. And if you are a child of the Father, then how the world treats the Father and his Son is how the world will treat you. Rejoice, James says, when you face trials and tribulation, because that's exactly what happened to the Son. You are always a child of His. 
Number four, God loves you so much that he gave you the Holy Spirit as the full manifestation of his love to live in you and be with you forever. One of the reasons why he gave you himself to live in you is because he wants you to be filled with his love and his love comes through the person of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Well, I just thought the Holy Spirit was to give me gifts and power. Sure, as an expression of his love. It's in Romans 5, 5. I want to read the rest of the chapter. Here's what it says. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Not like a squirt bottle. It's all you get today. Little, you know, mist poured out lavishly in our heart. How? By the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit living in you, who is the deposit of our future inheritance, who makes us know that we're saved, that changes our nature, and all the other doctrinal reasons why he's there. One of the reasons also is the fact that you will experience God's love, that the love of God will be poured out by the Holy Spirit in you. Well, how well do I know the Holy Spirit? Well, not much. That's the whole point of the higher Christian life yielding your bodies to him. You don't yield your body to Jesus. He has a body. You don't yield your body to God the Father. He's sitting on the throne in heaven. You yield your body to the Spirit who is in you, who wants to inhabit you, to control you. By the way, do you believe this? Because I can't give you desire. That has to come from you. He's either speaking the truth to everybody or he's only speaking the truth to somebody. And if he's only speaking the truth to somebody and not you, who wants to hang around a guy like that? Well, I'm kind of your friend, but not really. I'm going to have these friends over here. I'm just going to be a mean girl and exclude you because of some sin you've committed. What kind of God does that? We don't even hang with people like that. Yet we superimpose that on God the Father because we refuse to believe what his word says, that he really loves us in spite of our sins? Last one. And this is the, this is for me the hardest one. Last one. At your very worst, when you were at the height of your rebellion against him, and when you were most unlovable, at that time, God chose to love you by sacrificing his son to secure your salvation. Not when you cleaned your life up, not when you quit drinking and quit looking at porn and, and quit having bad thoughts about other people, not when you made yourself worthy, but when you were the most unworthy, where nobody cared about you, nobody loved you, that you were the most unlovable at that time, at that moment, is the point that Christ died for you because God lavished you with his love that much. So there's nothing any worse you can do than you have already done when he loved you in the beginning. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates. He shows. He displays. He proves. Oh, no, 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 no. You, you, you want me to 
Do, do I have to show you that I love you, God says? Well, let me demonstrate it to you this way. I want you to think of the worst thing you've ever done, the thing that you're most ashamed of, the thing that you're hoping that no one ever knows about. When you spit in my face and you violated your vows or whatever it was, at that moment in time, I will demonstrate to you my own love towards you that while you were in the depth of your worst sin, I sent my son to die for you. It was at that point I gave you the full expression of my love. Now, here's to the men out there. If you're like me, you have thoughts like this. I've tried. I've tried to be the spiritual leader. I've tried to, to study my Bible. I've tried to, to make vows, and I'm going to put you first and seek you first. But, but I fail. I fail every single time because God's voice is this still, small voice, and I have to be quiet and listen to, and the world's voice is just screaming at me all the time, and I have to meet these things, otherwise, what? I don't make enough money. Uh, I lose a client, and uh, it, it, it packs me on this world right here. And so, God, I've made vows to give you this first, but I fail. I'm good for two days, and then I blow it, and then I'm so ashamed, I don't go back. And I've done this over and over and over again to the point, I don't even want to do it anymore. My wife doesn't even believe me when I tell her that I'm going to commit my life to the Lord. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. It's at that point, and even deeper, that he died for you. He died for you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send these out to you, and I'm going to ask you, in addition to maybe what else you do, what other things you do. I, well, I try to read a psalm and a proverb a day. Keep doing that. That's great. I uh, read my utmost for his highest. Can't go wrong with that. Go, go ahead and do that. I, I, whatever. I'm going to send these emails out to you, and I want you just to read them, to focus on the truth in here, and either believe God means what he says or he's a liar. It's one or the other. He either loves you or he doesn't. He either keeps his word or he doesn't. And if you believe God keeps his word to everybody else and not you, then you are saying the most God-awful things about God imaginable. And even that you are saying that, he still loves you. He still loves you. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how many failures you've had. It doesn't how many times you have not succeeded. The fact is that he's willing to wipe the slate clean Consider it as if you never have sinned. That's the whole justified process. He promises to cast your sin away from his presence as far as the east is from the west. That's infinitely. North and south have poles. They stop. East and west, they don't. He's to take your sin and throw it in the bottom of the deep sea. And as Corey Tim Boom used to say, and post a sign there that says, no fishing. You can't drag it back up. That by just a prayer, Lord, I am so sorry for what I've done. The whole spiritual breathing thing that we talked about. You exhale your sin and your confession and your lack of commitment or your laziness or your desire for wealth or desire for selfishness or your unteachableness or whatever it is. I confess that to you. When I breathe in this forgiveness, and the sanctification, 
and his purity. And all of a sudden, I can start new right now, today. And if I blow it 15 minutes from now, I'm so sorry for that. Teach me. Teach me how to walk and teach me how to run. And I breathe it back in and I can start brand new, fresh, 15 minutes from now and 20 minutes from now. And you grow in your likeness to him. Darcy is just beginning to uh, walk. And she's really cute when she walks, but she's not ready to run yet. And sometimes she seems kind of unsure. And sometimes when she wants to walk, she sits down. And, and I cannot imagine any parent when all of a sudden Darcy stands up and takes that first two steps. They go, come on, come on, and sits back down. He's like, you loser. Class, what's wrong with you? I wanted you to walk seven steps. You only walked two. Get out of my face. Not even my daughter anymore. Who would ever do that? What an abusive father. And yet we think God is just like that when we don't meet some standard that we place and we superimpose abuse that we would never take from a human being on God and think it's humility. It's blasphemy. He loves you. He wants the best for you. He wants to reveal himself to you. Amen? Let me pray.